When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode 98 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. As always, we are glad you have joined us. As a Christian who had a conversion experience in my teens, Rebecca Davis's new book, Public Confessions, The Religious Conversions That Changed Politics, caught my attention. As I've written before and talked about at length in the first couple of episodes of my narrative podcast, A History of Evangelicals and Politics, my evangelical conversion experience was a meaningful moment for me. But as I look back on it now, I also realized that it came with a set of political assumptions. It was 1982, and evangelicals were flooding the Republican Party of Ronald Reagan, embracing his free market libertarian brand of politics and fighting against abortion by trying to get control of the levers of power. As Davis shows us, it is often hard to separate spiritual experience from contemporary politics. She unpacks these connections historically through the lives of 20th century religious and political figures such as Charles Colson, Muhammad Ali, Sammy Davis Jr., Sarah Booth Luce, and several others. Rebecca Davis is our guest on this episode of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, and she will be with us in a moment. But first, Let's take care of some business. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This free podcast is brought to you through the patrons of Current, an online journal of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. We keep this going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you read or hear at Current and want to support our work, and that, by the way, includes this bi-monthly podcast, our daily opinion features, the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, and our narrative podcast on the history of evangelicals and politics, then head over to currentpub.com and click the red support button or go directly to our Patreon page at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash current. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast, one word. You can follow me on Twitter at John Fia one J-O-H-N-F-E-A-1. Or you can follow current at on Twitter at current underscore pub one, or you could actually follow all three of those accounts. That would be great. And of course, we're also on Facebook and Instagram. 
If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet. That really helps. Uh, and what also really helps getting the word out is a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rebecca Davis is Miller Family Early Career Professor of History and Associate Professor of Women and Gender Studies at the University of Delaware. A recipient of a Public Scholar Award from the National Endowment for the Humanities, she writes and teaches about marriage, sexuality, and religion in American culture. She is a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians, a research associate for the Council on Contemporary Families, and a producer of the Sexing History podcast. Our interview today is based on her book, Public Confessions, The Religious Conversions That Changed American Politics. That was published in 2021 with the University of North Carolina Press. Our guest today on the podcast is Rebecca Davis. Uh, she is the author of a brand new book titled Public Confessions, The Religious Conversions That Changed American Politics. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So tell me, how does one get interested in writing about conversions? I think that a couple of different paths led me to this topic. One is that as a when I was working on my first book, I was seeing religious actors in the 20th century, clergy and educators talking to young people about marriage and giving advice to them. And one of the problems that comes up is the question of interfaith marriage and what should the religious position be on that. Right. But even more, you know, you see people, you see the process playing out, like is religion these broad questions that historians and sociologists of religion ask, is religion something people do? Is religion something people believe? Um, and how does that, how do either of those things affect the way people are in the world, right? What their politics might be. So that's sort of broad theoretical thing. The other piece is that I come from a family where there's been a lot of religious conversion over the generations. And in studying American religious history, sort of wondered where the converts were. Yeah. And there are amazing books on all kinds of new religious movements, uh, particularly for the, in the U.S. case, looking at, you know, missionaries in the 19th century, uh, the birth of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the conversions, all of those things involved. But I really knew from my personal experience that religious conversion is a huge piece of the story of religion in America. And the question for me became, how did that matter to these big questions about religion and American politics that so many people have been illuminating for us um, in, in scholarship over the last decade or so. Yeah, it's a really interesting study. I haven't seen a book quite like this that tries to tease out larger implications outside of the religious world for conversions. And you know, I was saying this, uh, if you go back and listen to this episode when we're done, I was saying that I had a religious conversion myself as a, as a teenager. I guess I didn't, and we could talk about this a little bit later. I think, you know, it wasn't until like 20 years later that I started thinking about all social and cultural kind of contact for what happened to me. 
let's dive in. This is um, sort of biographical study of individuals, although you, you know, you have kind of one central character in most of the chapters, but then you take some really nice kind of side uh, side analysis of other people who might fit into the chapter or the argument you're making in each chapter. Let's start with Claire Booth Luce. Now, I virtually, I knew almost nothing about her until I read the book. I'm guessing most of our listeners on this podcast have never heard of her. So, you know, briefly, who was she? And then talk a little bit about this idea of converting to Catholicism to preserve democracy. You know, anyone who understands, and you talk about this in the chapter, right? Anyone who studies American religion knows that Catholicism and American democracy have always had a very uneasy relationship in American history, at least from the perspective of outsiders like Protestants. So it's striking, right, to see someone saying, I'm converting to Catholicism to save democracy. So maybe talk a little bit about Luce. Claire Booth Luce was somebody I did not really know about until I started this project. And I was quite honestly, at the Library of Congress doing keyword search terms to try to find the sort of people I was looking for. She was one of the most famous and influential women of the 20th century U.S. who is now largely forgotten. She shows up in histories of U.S. domestic and foreign politics often very briefly. And often what's mentioned about her is that she was married to Henry Luce the famous publisher of Time and Life and Fortune. Well, she was, her paper was at the Library of Congress because she served two terms in Congress representing a district in Connecticut. So that was remarkable because she served, uh, she was first elected in 1942. There were only seven women in all of Congress. She, prior to that, had already had a distinguished career as an editor, as a journalist. She wrote really important books about the fall of Europe in uh, in World War II. Uh, she wrote uh, all kinds of important books, and she was a playwright. Her play, The Women, many folks may now have seen the more recent film adaptation of it, was the first all-female cast show on Broadway, uh, and she had other very well-received plays as well. She married Henry Luce in 1935. It was her second marriage. She already had uh, a child from her first marriage, Uh, So she was already well into her life and her career by the time they met and got married. Now, so how she thought about Catholicism, well, she converted to Roman Catholicism in 1946, and she did so after a period of personal crisis, which is often where people find themselves seeking out a new faith or faith of, of any kind. She wasn't particularly religious before her conversion. And she was an avid reader. She went out and found out what she could about different ways of finding meaning. And she, there was a one priest who was very persistent in writing to her and sort of drawing her out. And she agreed to talk with him. And he said, you really need to talk to Fulton Sheen. Fulton Sheen was then a Monsignor uh, in Washington, DC, was already extremely famous for his weekly radio program. By the early fifties, he'd become very famous for his uh, Sunday night television program, which millions of people watched. And Sheen and Luce really got each other intellectually. They would meet in his study and she could learn as much as she could. And ultimately he convinced her that Roman Catholicism was the true church and that this was 
the way uh, for her to find, to ground herself. But she was also totally on board with Sheen's program of saying, which was his whole shtick basically, was to teach America what Catholicism is. It's not scary. It's not, you know, something you need to worry about. In fact, it's about as American as anything can be. In addition to that, Claire Luce herself had been really in a front row seat seeing fascism and communism rip the world apart in the 30s and 40s as a journalist and as a member of Congress. And she was an early uh, on an interventionist saying, you know, in, in the United States actually needs to take a very aggressive stand toward Hitler. And then by 1945, before many other people uh, in politics were saying this, we need to be very aggressive toward the Soviet Union as well. And so she thought that this was a war of souls. And she thought that being converted, being Catholic and, and devoutly Catholic was the best way to defend oneself against the sort of corrupting ideas of communism. And so she went on this campaign after she was converted and uh, finished out her last term in Congress, giving lectures all over the country to Catholic organizations and to non-Catholic organizations, urging people to convert if they were lapsed, to rededicate themselves to Catholicism, and if they were established in their faith, to go out and convert others. And this, she thought, was how to save democracy. Yeah, and there's a, uh, at least in the first couple chapters, there's this theme of anti-communism, right, in the, in the characters that, that you discuss. That's really helpful. I'm, I'm just struck your comment about Sheen trying to portray Catholicism as kind of less scary and less exotic. But then you have this the, the classic image of Sheen. He looks like he's something out of the Middle Ages, you know, with the cape. Right. The, you know, I mean, yeah. so much for trying to make Catholicism more appealing to non-Catholics, right? His image just kind of, and you can see the pictures in the book or just Google it. It kind of, it kind of zooted a kind of otherness. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting that the material in the image of Sheen versus the message I find fascinating. The next chapter, then you get into this basically anti-communism, this Whitaker Chambers, uh, Alger Hiss, you know, controversy uh, over, um, you know, communism and communist spies and so forth. I'd encourage listeners who don't know much about this background to read up on it and so forth. But uh, Whitaker Chambers, who, former communist who calls out Alger Hiss and kind of is a expert witness to kind of get him to, uh, or he never actually does confess to it, kind of get him to uh, show that he's a, he's a communist spy. He has a religious conversion. And if I'm reading you correctly, Whitaker Chambers' conversion, was it to Quakerism? Is that Episcopalianism and then Quakerism? The way you put it, I think, is it leads him out of both communism and homosexuality, right? Is that fair? That's what he says. Yeah, that's uh, his take in, in this that's book. That's his right? take. Right, so, so you know, maybe riff on that a little bit. He explains all of this in Witness, his yeah. massive uh, history of his life and of his role in the his, uh, Alger Hiss trials. And he talks about being at a point in the late 1930s when he was he was actively working as a spy. And I don't know if he was a very good one. It's never clear that any of the information he 
gathered or handed over was of any value for espionage. That's disputed. But he decides that he's paranoid and he thinks the Soviet goons are going to come and get him and his family. He decides he has to leave this life. And he has this sort of spiritual revelation and decides that communist materialism is the work of the devil, basically, and that he will, he then sees God in everything. And he has children and he talks about, it's one of the more tender moments in an otherwise not very tender book of seeing his daughter and marveling at how perfect she was. She was a young child and that only God could have created this. The book does not mention anything about his homosexuality. What we learn from what we learn about is that there was a document that emerged in the 1970s in response to historians' FOIA requests. It was a statement that he had given to an FBI handler in New York City as the his trials were commencing. And in, he was apparently very worried that the his defense team would talk about him being an unreliable witness because he was uh, had had same-sex affairs with men. At the time, it was sort of peak Cold War homophobia, this idea that people who had same-sex desires or same-sex relationships were inherently untrustworthy and corruptible. So that sort of allegation would have in that courtroom really undermined what Chambers had to say, and it would have been extremely embarrassing for him. So he wants to, it seems, make sure the FBI knows this ahead of time so that they can, you know, so the government can prepare its counter argument. And he confesses to sort of, it seems as if during the years that he was a spy, he had a lot of sexual affairs with men between where he lived in DC area up through the New York area. Um, and there were additionally lots of rumors about his sexuality from when he was a younger man. Um, and so he says in this statement that at this moment when he converted, he found God, he dedicated himself to his wife and his children. So he becomes a heterosexual father figure. And he dedicated himself to democracy, to American democracy. And I find, found that really fascinating. It had been mentioned by other folks who've studied him. Um, He did first go into the Episcopal church guided by some of the colleagues he had at time magazine at the time. But then he said that Quakerism was, which one of his grandmothers uh, had been Quaker. He said that was what spoke to him. Um, But this idea that a conversion can accomplish all of these things together was really drew me into his story, which I hadn't otherwise engaged with before. Yeah, that's, that's, I did not know a lot of that history. So yeah, thanks for digging it up and telling that story. Let's talk a little bit, again, moving kind of through your sketches here, right? Let's talk a little bit about uh, a man named, uh, let's make, I hope I get his name right, Harvey, is it Mat- Matusau? Matusau? Matuso, I'm not really sure. Matuso? I don't know. Yeah. You call him, I love this line, you call him one of the most influential, if largely forgotten, liars of the mid-20th century. What is this guy doing in a book? Who is he? And what is this guy doing in a book about religious conversions? So he is fascinating. Uh, So Harvey Matusa was himself a religious convert. He grew up in a Jewish, largely secular Jewish family in the New York City area and later in life became a member of the um, of the Mormon church. And, but along the way, he, he joins the communist party sort of late, sort of in 1946, when 
more people were leaving the Communist Party than joining it in the U.S. And doesn't do very well. It never really fits in and comes across people working for the other team and realizes, oh, I can actually be really valuable if I start giving, you know, members of Congress or federal agencies information about all these people I've met while I've been a sort of, you know, third tier communist operative in, in, in the U.S. And subsequently, he then says, actually, I made almost all of it up. But by that point, he was a paid FBI informant. Um, he, you know, his his lies had really devastating effects on, you know, labor leaders who were not members of the Communist Party. But I mean, honestly, maybe they were. Who cares? But he got people fired. He had people, you know, facing prison terms. And he confesses that now remembering, you know, words from the Bible had told him he should confess that he made most of it up. And that's begins the journey that takes him then uh, to the Mormon church eventually. Um, but he's also important to my book because this fear that, you know, if, if, if conversions are doing this work as, as Luce tells us of helping steal people against this global, globally feared thing called communism from the U.S. perspective, um, or as Chambers is saying, is what really helped him, if, if finding God really helped him know the truth well, what do you do about people who are lying, right? So if if conversion is having this effect in American politics of telling you whom to trust and who not to trust. So the idea that there are, and there are really two fears. There's a fear that people might think they're telling the truth, but don't realize they're not. And then there's this fear of people who are intentionally lying. And so the whole informant system really collapses in the wake of the revelations that Harvey Matuso made up so much of what he said. For this next question, I, I should probably throw out a, a, I don't know if it's a confession or autobiographical reflection. I grew up with a dad who loved the, the Rat Pack. You know, I listened on a hi-fi stereo, as they called it back then, to albums by Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra and the man you talk about in one of your chapters, Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, I had no, I knew he had converted to Judaism, but I really hadn't really thought much about it until I read your chapter. You argue that Sammy Davis Jr.'s conversion to Judaism, uh, you know, it's not only a significant spiritual moment for him, but it also was his way of sort of living as a black man, finding solidarity with the civil rights movement of his age and so forth, his place within that. Um, and it was only through his conversion that, uh, or maybe only too strong a word, but it was through his conversion, right, that he was able to connect with these larger uh, fights over battles over racial justice in America. So may maybe talk a little bit about Sammy. I had such a good time learning about Sammy yeah. Davis Jr. I could tell. And, I could tell from the chapter the way you wrote yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so he he had been on the road with his dad and his man he called his uncle since he was three or four years old. Had his first starring role in a film when he was six or seven. So by the time Sammy Davis Jr. is in his late twenties, he's really starting his solo career. And it, he's performing in Vegas and he's, uh, you know, dating, in many cases, white Hollywood stars. And there's all kinds of concern about, you know, uh, he has his girlfriend, Kim Novak, and there's 
all kinds of threats against him for doing these things, dating white women. Um, but he, you know, he'd faced Jim Crow discrimination his whole life. And his writes about how his dad and his uncle tried to protect him from it. But his, um, he had a sort of famously by adulthood sort of misshapen nose. And he says that he, when he was a soldier, he was in one of the first uh, integrated army units. They didn't go overseas, but they were in training in the U.S., and uh, and stationed in the U.S. and he would get into fights with these super racist guys, he, white guys he met in in the army. So he had been literally fighting against racism to a certain extent. But it's in the mid '50s. He's in a terrible car accident. Ends up uh, he loses. That's when he loses his left eye, and he starts to meet rabbis uh, through the chaplaincy, and then people start to introduce him. And these are all reform rabbis. So it's the sort of more um, modern, um, adaptive, progressive part of, of American Judaism. And so these are men wearing, you know, modern dress. And so he's sort of struck by these are stylish guys. They're hip. They talk like me. Um, I can relate to them. And he also is struck by the reading that he does about the sort of larger history of Jews um, across, you know, 4,000 years and how often Jews had been on the point of disappearing from, you know, due to oppression and this sort of what he takes as a resiliency story of fighting back against oppression. And it spoke to him. He's like, that's, that's me, right? I've, that's what I've been doing. And he, so he sees these historical parallels, which is I'm sure something he learned from the rabbis he met with. I mean, that's, a very common trope within progressive Judaism that white American Jews would find common cause with African Americans because we share a history of oppression. The whole, the Passover Seder talks about once we were slaves in Egypt, now we are free. The sort of parallels to American slavery and emancipation are often made within that sort of context. Um, And he takes this sort of to the next level. And he feels that he was always Jewish, that this is the faith that makes the most sense to him in the world. And he becomes increasingly involved in the mainstream civil rights movement. He marches with Dr. King. He donates a ton of money to the civil rights movement and gets his friends in Hollywood and the entertainment business to do the same. And it works for a while until by the late 60s, early 70s, but the ethnic and racial politics of being black and being Jewish have moved in two different directions. And the black power movement and black nationalism are really talking about black politics in America in a totally different way that he doesn't jibe with. And then um, the whole sort of nostalgia for the shtetl and sort of the ethnic revival that Jews as well as Irish and other people are involved in doesn't include people like Sammy Davis Jr. It's really a kind of white ethnic narrative of immigration and struggle on the Lower East Side and, you know, coming into the 20th century. But he um, he always sees himself as having two identities, as Black and as Jewish. And it's a question that comes through the chapter that I keep returning to of, to what extent is he feeling that these two things the one supports the other, you know, the one that they're mutually constitutive. And to what extent does he see them as two side-by-side parts of who he is? And that's something he has to keep struggling with as the world around him is changing. 
Yeah, it must have been a very lonely journey for him as he's trying to sort these things out and the tensions that he's trying to deal with between these two things. As I read that chapter, Rebecca, you know, I was having flashbacks to my sixth grade chorus play, required chorus thing with my principal dressed up like the candy man, you know, and us singing in the background as sixth graders. <laughs> so if you know that Sammy Davis Jr. song, but, but, he hated that song. It was oh, his, one of his, okay. yes, it was, it was his most successful single though. He yeah. made more money from that, I think, than from any of his other recorded songs. And he loathed it. He just said, this yeah. is garbage. It was at a time when his career was sort of flagging. So, right, right. you know, he, it yeah, made him good. famous in another generation. Well, it's good to know what was kind of some of the things that were really going on in his head while he was singing these songs and doing all these things. <laughs> so I love the way you have Sammy Davis followed by Muhammad Ali, right? Uh, two black men, temporaries for the most part, um, who are both using a conversion experience to kind of make sense of their, their maybe blackness, their black identity, their manhood as black men. You know, Clay's, Clay's version, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, right? I think like Sammy Davis also uh, helped him find his place in American society. Uh, although of course his understanding of black masculinity and black male identity was quite different from Davis Jr. And it's interesting how you end this sort of chapter on Davis Jr. by talking about black power. And that's kind of where uh, we find Ali. Uh, so explain uh, the kind of racial and political implications of Muhammad Ali's uh, you know, I, I don't think needs any introduction, obviously, to our listeners, his conversion to uh, to Islam. Ali announces to the world that he's a member of the Nation of Islam in the early spring of 1964. But there are some wonderful biographies of him that really show how in the three or even four years leading up to then, so really starting from when he was 18 years old and maybe even sooner, he and his younger brother, Rudy, were exposed to the work of the Nation of Islam. They were, as a high schooler, he was listening to a record uh, of, you know, of, of a Nation of Islam songs, which are sort of sermon songs that he could listen to. Uh, he was, they were hanging out by the early 1960s at um, the nation's temple in Miami, which is where they trained. And he was really drawn to these ideas. It's a complicated story of how he, found his way to the Nation of Islam. He grew up in a Black Baptist household. There were also, though, traditions of Black nationalism in his family. His father had been very interested in Marcus Garvey's movement in the 1920s. Um, so there was that, uh, and the whole sort of Garveyite movement uh, was interesting to him. But he listens to these sermons, he goes to these meetings and rallies, and he comes to understand that the derision he experiences as a very successful Black man in America is explained through the theology of the nation, which talks about the sort of centuries or millennial-long process by which humanity came into existence, but then white people stripped away the power of the original people who were these North African or the Asiatic man, it varies in the nation's theology, how it's described, um, and so that the nation was about reclaiming. It's the lost found nation of Islam. They are reclaiming what was always theirs. And that this is not a world that, this is not a nation 
that can peacefully coexist with white people because white people are the original oppressors. And, you know, Ali doesn't come from, Ali comes from what would have been, you know, the black middle class. Uh, his, his dad has a, has a regular job. His mom is, is mostly sort of a stay at home mother and housewife. Uh, he's not coming at this from the economic margins. He's coming at this from a place of, it's the ideas that just sort of explain everything to him. He's like, well, now the world around me makes sense. Now I know why I'm being talked about and treated the way I am. And now I also understand what the right path is. And by the early to mid seventies, he is moved away from the nation of Islam into Sunni Islam. One of Elijah Muhammad's, the, the leader of the nation, one of his sons also kind of branches off from his father's organization. And Muhammad Ali follows that son into a more uh, sort of theologically traditional version of Islam. But yeah, he, I mean, the, the nation was very patriarchal and Ali, that made sense to him too, that black men should be powerful and have women who are supportive. Um, and he also, he was very astute in understanding what was going on. And one of, one of my favorite things from him, which was other black thinkers at the time said as well, like James Baldwin, was that, you know, white, whiteness was brainwashing, right? That there's the whole thing that this is normal, the way things worked in the United States, that the whole, we looking out on Christianity and white privilege and white supremacy, we've all been brainwashed into thinking that this is, that this is correct. And he sort of famously says, I know the truth. Uh, and so that it, it grounded him and he remained uh, a devout and devoted um, Muslim for the whole rest of his life. So you think of Muhammad Ali, right? And you compare him with like Elijah Muhammad or, or Malcolm X with their militancy and their, their, you know, separatism, right? But I think most, you know, average kind of white uh, people, you know, middle-class white people would, would not they would see Ali as, you know, much more friendly, if you will, right? Maybe it was just his personality or did he have a transition from a kind of militancy under Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X to a kind of more, you know, you, you pick, you, I think of Muhammad Ali, not, you know, outside of the ring, I think of him, you know, sparring with uh, Howard Cosell or, I just saw something on the internet the other day about him rocking on the back porch at Billy Graham's house. You know, I mean, you know, like that's not Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad, right? right. Was, is there something, is this just a person, just they have different personalities or was there some kind of rejection of that militancy? That's a great question. I mean, yeah. so Malcolm X was one of his mentors and yeah. especially early on, and they had a falling out, uh, but basically by, the summer of 1964, Elijah Muhammad was trying to push Malcolm X out of the organization. He saw him as a threat for a variety of reasons. And Muhammad Ali basically had to choose either stay loyal to Elijah Muhammad or stay loyal to Malcolm X. And he cho chose the former. Um, and then, of course, by the next year, uh, Malcolm X had been assassinated. So he really was you know, and in his state, he talks in, when he talks about why he's joining the nation in say 1964, when he's new into it and when he would have just been most intensely in conversation with Malcolm X, yeah. he, he doesn't talk at all about violence, but he talks very clearly about separation. Yeah. And that, you know, if you go to the, he has this, you know, quote, like if you go to the jungle, 
the species aren't intermixing, right? Like the, the lions are with the lions and the birds are with the birds and that's nature. That's how we're supposed to be. So it wasn't, he wasn't at any point talking about militancy of a violent kind, but he was, but then again, you know, Malcolm X really wasn't either. Uh, I guess I meant more kind of rhetoric, tone. Right, right, right. As opposed to kind of, we want to go blow up, uh, you know, the Lions Club or something. Right, yeah. He was pretty, I mean, Malcolm, uh, Muhammad Ali rather has, it's pretty clear that he thinks that there is no future for black-white reconciliation in those years. And I do think that he, along with a lot of other folks like uh, Elijah Muhammad's elder son, um, really in the wake of the assassination of Malcolm X and given what Malcolm was doing at the end of his life to build a, a different sort of Islamic yeah. movement. Yeah. They gravitate toward that. And I think that it allows Muhammad Ali to someone who was, whose career was based on being such a, uh, an extraordinary fighter right. to express in the rest of his life that he wasn't looking for yeah. that kind of antagonism. It's a really interesting story of kind of change over time. You think of Ali in that famous moment and the, what, what Olympics was that? Was that the 96 Olympics in Atlanta, you know, where he's lighting the torch and he's suffering with Parkinson's and, you know, he clearly his image has clearly at that point, if not well before that, right, transcended any kind of black nationalism. I mean, he's an American hero. Um, he almost he almost seems to be more representative in his later life of a kind of more king early civil rights movement kind of figure than than the the way he came up. So we could we could have a whole podcast on that one um, as someone who again spent a lot of time listening to Sammy and watching uh, Muhammad Ali fight as a kid. So many questions uh, I have. One more quick follow-up. You mentioned brainwashing, and this comes up like several other points in your book, you know, people who are brainwashed by cults or people who are converting to a particular religion and they're accused of being brainwashed. Again, autobiographical here, you know, I grew up kind of in a very white ethnic uh, immigrant, Italian, Slovakian, Catholic home. And I mentioned I had a conversion experience to evangelical Christianity uh, in my teens. And I heard this from my Catholic grandparents, you know, this is you joining a cult. Evangelicalism has been, you know, at the time I couldn't answer the question, but evangelicalism has been around forever, right? If anything, you joined the cult in America, at least, right? But, but I heard brainwashing, you know, all this kind of stuff. Can you give me one more example of that from the book where this brainwashing thing comes up apart from Ali? I know I didn't, I didn't prep you for this question, but yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's a great question. So, and of course, as I'm using brainwashing in the book, it's sort yeah. of in quotations, right? Right, right. I think right. that it's, but, but it's not that's an, how it was always used with me. You know, you're being right. brainwashed by, you right. know, a, today would have been a total, you know, it's a, it's a total mainstream, if you will, I'm using quotes again, uh, evangelical church that we joined. You know, it wasn't like, you know. Well, I think that the the whole concept of brainwashing is really important to my book because it gets at this question of, maybe people are deluded, right? And if people are, you know, just as someone could think that they agree with fascism or could think that they agree with communism, could someone think that they agree with this particular faith? Uh, and what can we do about that? So by the, Ali is of course sort of famously uh, 
mocked by his father and then by lots of reporters for having been brainwashed by Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad into joining the Nation of Islam. And I think he's the first prominent religious convert that I can find to whom that word is, for whom that word is used. By you know the late 1960s, early 1970s, with the counterculture, there are many very scholars religion debate if there was more conversion or if it just seemed like there was more conversion. But people are paying attention, and there are all kinds of new religious movements. There's um, groups like Children of God, which is described as being very cult-like. Again, cult is a word that scholars of religion yeah. only ever put in quotations, sort of a yeah. new religious movement. Um, Hare Krishna is finding lots of folks, but also the Jesus people on the West Coast and, and elsewhere. So there's this broader cultural phenomenon of lots of particularly young people joining new religious movements and new groups. And it becomes a, you know, we see it in, um, and then, and what then happens is that some of these folks turn around. And um, so some of their folks who were perhaps in a secular organization or did some sort of violence or were involved in something criminal have these sort of, it, by the mid-1970s are having, or actually early to mid-1970s are having these very well-documented born-again conversions. Yeah. And so there are then questions about, well, just so Susan Atkins was a member of the Charles Manson group and was involved in the murder spree and is arrested. And she then says that, um, and, and the question was, was she as a young woman brainwashed so-called by Charles Manson into being part of his sort of drug addled, you know, violent group? Well, then she says in prison that she's been born again. Um, and so for conservative evangelicals, for people who are trying to build this culturally and politically power, powerful evangelical Protestant movement in the United States, it's not quite there yet. I mean, the 1970s is really a decade of movement building. And they see that someone like Susan Atkins, but also people like Charles Colson, who had been convicted and sent to prison for being involved in the Watergate cover-up, who was an aide to President Nixon, um, that he, he says he is a born-again conversion. And so how do they then make sure that it's clear that what these folks have experienced is not a brainwashing, that that truth comes through this particular kind of conversion? And they're very successful in doing that at a time when, I mean, I, I, the, you know, even in 1976, Jimmy Carter's advisors are worried about how his fate was going to play with the electorate. And they call it the weirdo factor. Being born again was still seen as somewhat unusual. Like you, your experience talking about, you know, your family's response. I mean, that would have been probably extremely typical at the time. Whereas today, you know, we see national political figures uh, national cultural figures moving between evangelical Protestantism, Roman Catholicism, and it's right, right. sort of no big deal. It, I'm sure it's a big deal to them, but it's no big yeah. deal sort of culturally yeah. anymore. And I think that juxtaposing the born again conversion against what we're seeing as brainwashing uh, changes of you know personal direction was important to how evangelicals yeah. uh, leaders made their case 
Yeah. And, and when I think of this period, right, the early 70s, I don't think, I think you mentioned her in the book, Patty Hearst and all of this. And, and it's, you know, I, I love reading the, the kind of journalist historian Rick Perlstein on this stuff. He just kind of really dives into this stuff, this, this kind of weird, like, the hippies and the cults and the, I remember, you know, as a new convert, even in the early 80s, you'd go to these conventions and there'd be these anti-cult deprogrammer ministries, you know, and, mm -hmm. and they were always a guy with like long hair, a beard, you know, who came out of this. It was such a stereotype. So, so it's, it's interesting, you know, and this gets to my last question here about the way these evangelicals, Colson and, and Atkins and so forth, tried to, tried to distinguish from that culture, which seems just so in the air, right? Everybody was being brainwashed. It was an easy way to kind of explain things, right? And, and it's always a kind of, you know, I think it's kind of sloppy way to sort of explain oh they were just brainwashed right tons of additional questions i could ask you on that one but for time let's move on to to evangelicals right i don't think it's interesting we've we've gone through several case studies here we haven't hit yet yet an evangelical conversion story until now um until this question so i'm going to preface this question this way uh you know over the last six or seven years um, and you saw this a lot during the pandemic with the Zoom churches, right? Evangelical preachers would would talk about, you know, the number of conversions that we had today. Even though we were on Zoom, we had 600 decisions for Christ or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. And it's always led me to kind of ask, especially during the whole Trump presidency, right? You know, what, what are these people converting to? it's less of a kind of spiritual religious question than a historical question, you know, or a sort of detached. I mean, I have theological issues with it too, but a kind of detached kind of, you know, what are, to what extent, like, what if they, what if these people converted in Robert Jeffress's big first Baptist Dallas church and just, you know, through the conviction of the Holy spirit, I'm putting this in quotes, decided that the Democratic Party was the best way to pursue your life from this best reflected the teachings of Jesus, right? Um, you know, I don't think that would, you know, I think, I don't think that would fly, right? So I guess in your, in your last chapter, you talk about, uh, you mentioned Atkins, Charles Colson, uh, even Eldridge Cleaver, right? The Black Nationalist, Black Panther, right? Um, now, again, I think you take these conversion experiences at face value, you know, uh, you, they were, they were meaningful to the people at the time. And, you know, well, we don't know what their, you know, what their motives were, but you also know how many of these 1970s and even into the 1980s kind of celebrated evangelical conversions to Christianity often ended up as well with, or came with an embrace of GOP politics, free market capitalism, uh, a kind of almost baptizing of, of free market capitalism and libertarianism, right? Um, elaborate on that a little bit, Rebecca. Uh, sure, I think that it's some, it relates to our earlier, you know, the answer to your earlier question about brainwashing, this yeah. idea that to choose to sort of go through the process of being born again, it's, you know, theologically, it's complicated between how much is the individual choosing and how much is the individual receiving a gift that they didn't ask for. So, but that, that this is a person with free will, that this, yeah. the, the person who was born again has done so not through brainwashing or coercion or any sort of force, 
but through this freely given and freely received act of, of grace. And so, so that's part, so theologically, there's a kind of matchup, but I also think it's really important that we, and it's something I try to thread throughout the whole book is that when people choose a faith, it's not simply a theological choice. There are also cultures and politics deeply intertwined with what we believe, what we discard as a belief, how our beliefs change throughout our lives. And I think that that's very much the case for the sort of evangelical Protestant conversions that I'm writing about in that last chapter of the book. There are, and another theme of the book that I try to pull together in that last chapter is the way in which a sort of privileging of heterosexuality, a sort of acceptance of the racial status quo in the United States, and a rah-rah, you know, pro-capitalist viewpoint get kind of packaged together. And that doesn't mean that people aren't sincere in their faith. It means that in sincerely converting to a particular faith, they're also entering into a whole set of ideas, ideas that they may have had prior to their conversions, but which they find affirmed. And that's that that different from what Sammy Davis Jr. did, right? He felt himself and his worldviews and his politics affirmed through conversion to Judaism. Muhammad Ali with the Nation of Islam felt the things in his life and, and Claire Booth loose to Catholicism, that this was something that put a affirmed who she was. And that's, again, not to say that religion is all structural and functional and no, that there is an individual believing person at the center of that decision. So I think in, so fast forward to, you know, 2015, 2016 and white evangelical support for Donald Trump. I've been very, I was seeing in my own work and then was delighted to read Kristen Cobes Dumais book, Jesus and John Wayne and find sort of reaffirmed in her far more detailed way, how certain gender and racial ideals have been baked in to this particular variety of white evangelical Protestantism that uh, she she writes about and that we see in support for Donald Trump. It's not to say it's all of white evangelicalism, but this this sort of militant masculinity um, that has been so important and we see now playing out in certain forms of Christian nationalism. So, um, yeah, I think that what people believe is really important, but what people believe is not a purely intellectual or spiritual thing. People come to their beliefs and reach their conclusions in whatever context they're living in. And that's really a big part of what I was interested in unpacking in the book and why I think, you know, questions of identity are so interesting when it comes to religious conversions. Are you changing and becoming something different? Are you reaffirming who you already were? And how and why does that matter to the way that we think about it? Yeah, and I think this is the work of the historian, right? You know, particularly, you know, the theologian will try to uh, will try to figure out whether this was a real conversion, you know, or something. I don't know how you do that, but but obviously we're always shaped by our cultural and social kind of contexts, even even when we think it's just between us and God. <laughs> you know, it's right. a kind of individualistic uh, kind of thing. Little little plug uh, for those of you who are new to the podcast, uh, we actually interviewed Kristen Kobes Dumay uh, maybe 15 episodes ago, right when the book came out. Um, we got her really early <laughs> on, on the tour, you know, so uh, you can go listen to that. 
Rebecca, thanks so much for your time. Um, this, I think this is a very, very timely, timely book. And, you know, I just love it. I, I, I'm attracted to books on the program where it's, you know, really good scholarship, but also that kind of can help us understand, obviously, something that's going on right now. And I think that's what this book does. So, uh, again, I know you're busy. You're out there on a book tour right now in California. I hope that goes well. And uh, again, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. talking about the book a little bit off the podcast and uh, you know just kind of share some of the things we were talking about there I think she'd be fine with this you know it's it's always great when you find a, a book in this case a book on American religion that has really sound scholarship but at the same time kind of really helps to explain a contemporary moment uh, for those of you I know we have a lot of listeners who are evangelicals uh, that chapter on uh, these conversion experiences in evangelical conversion experiences in the 70s and 80s I think was just fascinating uh, and it goes back to the story that I told at the beginning of the episode and that I talk about more in full in the first couple episodes of the evangelicals and politics podcast. Uh, podcast. Uh, you know, what are these people converting to? And, you know, how is conversion something more than just kind of an individual vertical experience, in other words, between um, God or the divine and, and human beings? I really appreciate it as well as the diversity of the book. You know, we have some Jewish conversion, Quaker conversion, conversion to um, the nation of Islam, of course, evangelical conversions, conversions to Catholicism. So get your hands on a copy of Public Confessions, The Religious Conversions That Changed Politics, available at all booksellers near you. I get to know the work of Rebecca Davis. I just want to say one more thing here. In her bio, I left out her first book, which um, I now want to get and, and read, uh, especially in light of some of the things I'm doing on the other podcasts with, uh, with marriage, uh, gay marriage, and the definition of marriage in American life uh, in the turn, at the turn of the 20th century. The title of that book is More Perfect Unions, The American Search for Marital Bliss, and that was published in 2010 with Harvard. It's a study of 20th century uh, marriage. I was looking at it a little bit before the podcast. It's it's definitely a book that I want to pick up and uh, digest very, very soon. So as always, I hope you enjoy this episode and forces you to think a little bit, especially those of you who have had religious conversions of your own. Uh, so again, thanks for listening and may your way of improvement always lead home. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is recorded via Zoom. Original music is by Overholt. The co-founder of the podcast, who is now off doing bigger and better things, is Drew Durley Hermely. Our producer is Casey Lehman. She's out of Nashville. And I, John Fia, am your host.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.